All right, so Transformed by Jesus is our series. We're taking a look at what it means to encounter Jesus in, in different ways. Taking a look at people in the Bible who have encountered Jesus and what that was like. And today, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And uh, while you're turning there, I, I just have a question for you. Um, have you ever downloaded an app from the App Store or Google Play, whatever your theological conviction on phone company usage is, Apple or Android or whatever? Have you ever downloaded an app? And sometimes you can download an app. Well, I, I have too, by the way, because I'm alive in 2017. Let's be real. When you download an app, there's certain versions of apps that are, some of them have pay versions of the app, right? And the pay version of the app is the real, like, works really well, it's functional, it has everything that you actually want in it version of the app. And then they also, they have a free version of the app too, right? You guys ever experienced this? Yes, Emily, Emily has experienced it, great. And when you download the free version of the app, it's... What happens all the time whenever you try to do something in the app? Ads pop up, right? You're like, I would like to go to the next page. An ad pops up. And if you try to dismiss the ad, they're like, hey, another thing pops up that says, hey, you know, we got a pay version of this app if you'd like to have it. And my favorite thing about the ads, too, because I just downloaded this app that's helping me um, start uh, getting back into jogging more frequently and, and running. And I downloaded the free version, and there is very much a pay version, but it's like ten ninety nine, and there's just something against my religion of paying $11 for an app. I just don't know. I don't know. But, so I'm currently on the free version, and ads pop up no matter what I want to do. And it's not, it's not major, major corporations that advertise on the free versions of the app. You don't, I don't ever get an ad from Chevy or McDonald's or whatever. It's ads from people and companies that I've never heard of, and they say things like this, are you suffering from hair loss? <laughs> like, are you currently under the uncarryable weight of having no hair? Are you su- I'm like, when, when did suffering get to be used? Like, th- that, no, I'm good, actually. I'm really okay. Are you... Are you suffering having to do this or that? Click this banner. And, you're, and the point of the free app is to eventually get you to buy the pay app, right? They try to make it so annoying for you to have to go through. And, it, and like all I want to do is start my playlist on this thing, you know, and if I want to start the playlist, it's an ad. If I would like to do shuffle, it's another ad. And you just get the feeling that you just want to get down to it. You know something's there. You just want to get down to it. Have you guys ever experienced that? Yeah? Well, we're looking at a guy in John 3 today who meets with Jesus. And while he doesn't come totally politely, he doesn't come totally honoring, he, doesn't, he kind of comes a little bit clumsily, he just wants to get down to it with Jesus. And the man's name is Nicodemus. And we're going to find out a little bit about Nicodemus, and we're going to just kind of read through the first part of John 3, and we're we're going to look at what this encounter with Jesus starts to say about Nicodemus and what it says about Jesus. But before we do that, we have to kind of take a little snapshot of John 1 and 2 really quickly before we jump into John 3. And at the the first part of of John chapter 1 in, in verse 14, 
the author, John, tells about Jesus' coming, and he begins to describe Jesus' coming as the Word who was with God, and the Word, that is Jesus, who was God, came to be the Word become flesh. And in verse 14 of John 1, I know I told you to turn to John 3, but it's just two chapters over. Verse 14 says, The Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, and here's where it is, full of grace and truth. So Jesus came and made his dwelling among us in flesh as a man, full of grace and truth. That means that when we see interactions that Jesus has with people, it's going to be full of grace that is full of the unmerited, lavish love of God brought to the fore, brought clearly to the forefront of people's lives, lavished by Jesus, unmerited, undeserved, that grace is going to be present. It also means he came full of truth, which means there is no yielding, there is no apology, there is no curtailing of what the truth of God actually is. And somehow in the fullness of Jesus, those two things exist fully and without competition and without contradiction. So before we just dive into encounters with Jesus, we have to remind ourselves how and why Jesus came, full of grace and truth. You guys okay? So then we, in the rest of John chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see John the Baptist declaring that Jesus is coming and then meeting Jesus and baptizing Jesus. And John sees the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus. And then we actually see Jesus begin his earthly ministry. We don't get at John, the the gospel of John isn't as much of the Christmas Story, but we jump right into Jesus' ministry real quick. And the first miracle that Jesus ever does takes place at a wedding in a town called Cana. And he's at the wedding, and, and the wedding has something catastrophic happen, and that is they run out of wine, which was a bad thing. It's a bad, dishonoring thing for a, for a wedding host to run out of wine. And, and Jesus has this moment with his mom. Now, my mom is visiting uh, here today because hashtag grandkids. Um, so she's in from Florida, so she'll probably get a chuckle out of this. But Jesus, uh, when, when the, when the uh, wine runs out, Mary comes up to Jesus and she says, basically, this is the James version, you know, the wine has run out. And Jesus says, don't involve me in this. It's not my time. But not even Jesus can escape these moments with his mother, where his mother doesn't even answer. She just turns to the servant and says, do whatever he says. Jesus, we've run out of wine. Mom, do do whatever he says, just him. And so they do, and Jesus turns the water. They fill these ceremonial washing bins with water, and it gets turned into wine. Jesus does, and, and it amazes everyone at the banquet. And later during the Passover, we find Jesus in Jerusalem in the temple courts. And the temple courts have become a place where it was... It was all about cashing in on money and cashing in on the laws and sacrifices and people taking advantage of one another. And Jesus goes in, like it says in Psalm 69, zeal for my father's house will consume me. And he goes in and he overturns the money changers' tables and he overturns uh, all, the, all the, the, the place where all the goods and wares are set out and he, he just lights the whole place up. And they say, excuse me, what sign can you give us? that you have the authority to do this. Because in the Jewish culture at that time, authority from God was proven by the signs that you could do. And Jesus answers, the sign is, if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. 
And they think he's talking about the actual physical temple, which took 46 years to build, but Jesus means his body. And for the rest of John 2, he, he's in some of the neighboring towns, healing the sick and performing signs. But it says Jesus didn't entrust himself to the people there because he, he, was, he was stewarding the revelation of who he is. But the bottom line is, the word about Jesus is starting to get out. The word about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is starting to get out. And that's where we find ourselves in John chapter 3. Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's begun his earthly ministry, and the word about him is starting to get out. But he wants to steward this revelation. So I'm going to read, you know me, big chunks of scripture. We're still friends. But let's read the first 21 verses of John chapter 3. It's going to be behind us. Don't zonk out. I won't if you won't. Jamie Wilson's keeping, he's letting me know if I'm falling asleep on stage. So he's just... He's doing this if I need to stand up straighter or anything like that. But let's read John chapter 3 together, and then we'll come back and take a look at this encounter with Nicodemus. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And you guys can read, basically recite this next part with me probably. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Whole lot of stuff going on here in this conversation. And I'm gonna hustle so we can get to all of it. So in the first three verses, we hear that there was a Pharisee a man by the name of Nicodemus, 
who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, what does all this mean? Why does, why does John see fit to write who Nicodemus is? Well, to examine it, we know that a Pharisee was, uh, was a type of religious class. It was a type of religious office, a level in, in, in Israel. Their, their social setup wasn't like ours today as much, where things were much more official. You were much more officially where you were in a class. And there wasn't really a discussion of changing that. So this man, Nicodemus, is a Pharisee, which means a couple of things for him. It means, firstly, that he is an an intensely involved scholar of the law of God. That is the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. He would have been intimately familiar with all of the Old Testament scriptures. So intimately familiar that as a Pharisee, He was so preoccupied with keeping the law that he would engage in what the Pharisees have been engaging in for years, and that is making regulations upon regulations upon the law just to make sure they never got close to even thinking about breaking the law. The problem with that is, is that God never intended it to be set up that way, and it began to become burdensome on everyone to even try to get close to keeping God's law. And we see nowhere in the Old Testament where any of the law is given or any of the prophets describe the heart of God. We see nowhere where this Pharisaical approach approach is the heart of God. But what it also accomplished was it set up a great distance between someone who's a Pharisee and someone who is not. You see, someone who is a Pharisee walks with a stature and an authority because of their deep religious piety. He was an accomplisher of the law of God. And he reveled actually in the distance between himself and someone lower than himself. So Nicodemus comes as a, first of all, as a male Jew, which sets him apart already. He walks confident in his keeping of the law and his, his circumcision, his place of, of being uh, this Jew amongst Jews who has no problem being confident in his standing and no problem being confident in the fact that you don't have his standing. And there was a great distance and an an unspoken and sometimes a spoken oppression from Pharisees down to those who were not. That's who Nicodemus is. He's not just that. He was also a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, what is this? The Jewish ruling council was a council called the Sanhedrin, And the Sanhedrin was a group of anywhere from 25 to 70-ish men at any different time who were Pharisees. And these were the men who, like, as distant as the Pharisees were from from the non-Pharisees, take that distance and now we've got the Sanhedrin. These were the ruling religious Pharisees. These were the ones who passed judgment, who created, who created the regulations, who deemed whether or not this was, this was right or this law was followed in this way or whatever. These, these were the men who were the gatekeepers of what it meant to follow the law of God. And this is who, this is who Nicodemus is a part of. If you remember, if you've ever read the story of Jesus Christ being crucified, he goes before the Sanhedrin. He stands trial before the Sanhedrin. It's not a political trial. Rome politically controls this part of the world at this time. So they're not a political ruling council. They're a religious ruling council. And they deem what is religiously fit or not for the Jewish people. That's who Nicodemus is. 
And it says then in verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. Now, I like Nicodemus, and here's why. Not for anything that I've just described about him. But I like Nicodemus because he's tired of the free version of the app. He wants to get something, something, something makes him want to get down to it. For whatever reason, he's there. Now, he's not coming to Jesus in an honoring way. Why? Because he's at night. And honestly, that's very meaningful in the Jewish culture. Nothing official happened at night. It was a time for no official business, which also, if you've read the story of Jesus being crucified, his trial happened at night. So Nicodemus, there's a little bit of a furtive, a furtiveness with him coming. That, that word meaning secrecy, a little, little bit like, I'm not going to sit in the corner cafe with you where everybody can see me talking to you, but I still want to meet with you. So Nicodemus has come, and the reason why I like Nicodemus is because in spite of all his warts and flaws and and his arrogance and his probably insufferable snarkiness to anyone else around him, you can see why I like Nicodemus, he still, he still, he still comes. He still comes. Not totally honoringly, not totally politely. He even says, he, he gets the, um, he gets the superior we going on there. You know where he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Sorry, Nicodemus, it's just you standing there. You ever seen a politician who's alone on a stage and he or she just goes, we? I'm like, sorry, dude, it's you. You think that. You think that. But that's the kind of the posture that Nicodemus takes. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God because of the signs. That, and Jesus, it's like he cuts him off. I love that Nicodemus doesn't actually ask Jesus anything. And then it says, Jesus replied. (laughs) It's like Jesus goes, let me stop you. (laughs) Let me stop you. Because he can smell the evaluation that's coming. And Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. What does Nicodemus say? Well, first of all, before we get into that, that word again, the Greek word for again there is the word anothen. I didn't put it up, but it's, it's anothen. And it has, I love ancient Greek because it always means something else too. You ever notice that? It's like, that's really cool. But the word anothen means again, but it also means a different origin when the again happens. If that makes sense. It means a more heavenly origin. So it's like something's going to happen again, but this time the origin is going to be from above. So when Jesus says, you must be born anothen, you must be born again with a different origin. But Nicodemus isn't even tracking there. Nicodemus is so consumed with with getting to the point with Jesus and and sniffing it out and sussing out the situation that he says in verse 4, it's like Nicodemus responds as quickly as Jesus responded to him. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their, in, into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answers. Now he's answered because Nicodemus has asked a question. We're not just replying anymore. He says, very truly. By the way, that very truly, it's, it means, it's like, of course, you're, of course you mean this. Of course you're saying it. But that phrase, very truly, means like extra well done truth. 
It's like amen, amen. It's like capital truth, not medium rare truth. It's like, I, this is so true, I have to tell you it's true type of thing. And Jesus says it three times to Nicodemus. This is the second time. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus is beginning to describe something that Nicodemus doesn't have a paradigm for. And here's what it is. See, Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, being who he is, being part of the Jewish ruling council, he's hearing Jesus speak about the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is not a foreign thing to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has lots of thoughts about the kingdom of God. He absolutely believes in the kingdom of God. And his thought about the kingdom of God, the literal, physical kingdom manifest reigning of God, is Nicodemus believes that that's going to come at the end of history. We we see that in the Old Testament, um, but that it's going, to be, it's going to be a literal physical time, and we, we, it's not actually going to be the kingdom of God until then. But Jesus is beginning to speak of something different. Jesus is beginning to speak of entering and seeing the kingdom of God like it can actually happen right now. Jesus is beginning to describe to Nicodemus a kingdom of God that has been actually inaugurated but not consummated yet. Inaugurated, but not consummated. And I would argue that you and I share in that same period of time right now that Jesus is describing to Nicodemus. It's a time when God has begun to usher in the kingdom of God by the sending of his son. And in this time before the consummation of all things, Jesus is describing to Nicodemus this time where you and I right now actually live. It's a time of partnering with God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to bring about his purposes as the kingdom is here and not yet. It's why Jesus can say to you and me, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all men, teaching them to obey what I've commanded you, and I'm with you. It's why that happens in partnership with God in this age. Because at the consummation of all things, there, there won't, we, we won't be evangelizing anymore, right? There won't even need to be faith. There will be sight. And Nicodemus, in his understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, wants to jump right there. And you know what's also convenient for Nicodemus is? Boy, that kingdom of God, his place is really secure in it. He's got a comfortable view of the kingdom of God. Because He's a Jew among Jews. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the ruling council. And surely when God comes to establish his kingdom through the Messiah, Nicodemus is going to get tabbed for at least secretary of state or something like that. He's a Jew among Jews. Jesus even says to him later on in verse 10, you're Israel's teacher. And that's, that's like a... In the, in the original Greek, it's kind of like a title Jesus is reminding him of. Like, like Nicodemus had a position of being a teaching member of the ruling council. So Nicodemus probably is sitting there pretty confident that there's probably not too many other Jews in the city that night who would have the standing that he would have in the kingdom of God eventually one day. And all of a sudden, Jesus is sitting across from him saying, actually, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, but not consummated. And the way Jesus is saying to enter into it is open to everyone. Pharisee, ruling council, or blind and destitute. Samaritan, Roman, 
tax collector, Republican, Democrat, you name it. It's open to everybody. And the way in is confounding to Nicodemus. And Jesus says very truly in verse 5, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. And Jesus actually says in verse 7 to Nicodemus, he says, you, you shouldn't be surprised at what I'm saying. Really? For all that we just described about Nicodemus, I would think he'd be pretty surprised, right? And Nicodemus does seem pretty surprised. So why does Jesus think he shouldn't be? Why does Jesus think Nicodemus, think, why does Jesus think Nicodemus shouldn't be surprised? Here's why. Because what Jesus is describing is not a, an all of a sudden new, this moment, New Testament thing. Entering into the kingdom of God. Entering into salvation, the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is dropping hints for Nicodemus as to what he's talking about when he says, you must be born of water and born of the spirit. He's referring to a passage in Ezekiel, which is also my new son's name. See how that worked. Just making sure you're there. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, This is what God the Father himself says about the coming kingdom of God. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and and to be careful to keep my laws. I'll put my spirit in you, and I'll move you to follow my decrees. How does that sound to a religious heart? God moving us to follow his decrees. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, born of water and born of the spirit, to enter into salvation, enter into the kingdom of God, God has to cleanse you of your iniquities. And he has to put his spirit in you. And none of that is based, Nicodemus, on your racial status, your religious status, your social status, your achievements, where you've gotten to, what boxes you've checked off, what you've put your energy to, what you can accomplish. It's all none of that. And the message to the religious heart, the achieving heart from Jesus is, this is supernatural. This is supernatural, and it's available to all. And we start to see some of this interaction, the, 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 not the tension, but the cooperation of the grace and truth that Jesus came in. The grace that is showing Nicodemus, that is drawing him back to the authentic understanding of what God has always said. But the truth to say, I know this is offensive, but I can't yield on any of it. I can't yield on any of it. Does that make sense? And Jesus even describes it with an example from the wind. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, you cannot tell where it's going, verse 8. Or it comes from or where it's going, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, you, you are comfortable with the mystery of the wind. Be comfortable with the mystery that God's salvation is supernatural. And not achieved. And not achieved. That God has prepared salvation and the gospel for all people. He's also prepared all people to receive the gospel. 
It's an invitation that Jesus is giving to Nicodemus. Verse 9, Nicodemus is still struggling. He's probably remembered that passage in Ezekiel. And he's still struggling. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? Very truly, amen, amen. Extra truth. It's so true, I have to tell you it is. I tell you, we speak of what we know. I love this because Jesus is kind of putting the we back to Nicodemus. He's like, you, 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 we, you use we to see if I'm a teacher who's come from God. I use we to tell you that uh, I speak of what I know. And I've spoken to you. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one's ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is revealing who he truly is to Nicodemus. And he's further extending the comfort of the Old Testament to Nicodemus in verse 14 where he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes, may have eternal life. In Numbers 21, really quickly, Moses and the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness and the Israelites began to grumble and complain and God, as punishment, allowed venomous snakes to come and prey on the Israelites and and then said to Moses when the Israelites repented, whoever looks to the bronze snake that you hold up will be healed. And Jesus is saying, the Son of Man is gonna be lifted up and all, all who look to him will be saved. And I love that phrase, lifted up. John uses it in his gospel a lot to dually mean exalt and crucified. The Son of Man will be lifted up, exalted and crucified. And in the midst of this stupor for Nicodemus, in the midst of this religious heart being broken down, in the midst of this realization that salvation and the kingdom of heaven is available to all, prepared for all, and beginning to have this realization that actually God has prepared all to walk into that, not just a few. We get the clearest presentation of the gospel, in my opinion, in all of Scripture. Not just on a poster when someone's kicking a field goal. Verse 16, for God so loved the world, the world, everyone, man, woman, child, Jew, Gentile. And that's, by the way, what God said to Abram. I will bless all. All people through you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Not just gave to be crucified, but gave to be incarnated. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But listen, whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Here's that, here's that edge of truth again. Friends, there's, a, there's, a, there's an insidious thought working its way through some of the church today that God's condemnation just really might not be all that bad. That it, that it might not be actually consciously rough to be separated from God. Maybe, maybe even hell is not even a conscious torment and separation. Well, I got to tell you, I'm not really concerned about the definition of hell, although we can have a theological conversation about it. What I'm concerned about is it's so what it is that God sent his son to save us from the condemnation from it. I don't really care if it's an ice cream truck in Wicker Park. God says it's separated from me. And if you don't believe in my son, you already stand condemned. And Jesus is saying this to a man who has so religiously established himself. 
that he couldn't fathom being condemned. That's the rough news. The great news is it's equally available to him as it is to anyone else. It's the scandal of the gospel to the religious heart. It's supernatural salvation is. It can't be earned. It can only be given and received. Salvation is a miracle of God. And I want to end with this. Thanks for being patient with my sort of jazz as we like played the scriptures and looked at it. I want to end with this. If salvation is a supernatural act of God, then let's not go about it religiously. If we want to be a church that is trusting, and we are a church that is trusting to see the lost saved, we don't bank on our strategies. We don't evolve somehow to a point evangelistically where all of a sudden we're doing better. Salvation is an act that is a miracle of God. So our posture is to be on our knees before that God, crying out to the only one who can bring the dead to life. The only one who can bring the dead to life. This is the verdict, verse 19 says. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. The gospel is not an unoffensive thing. Born of water means iniquities cleansed. Iniquities cleansed means I acknowledge my iniquities. <laughs> but whoever lives by the truth, verse 21, comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. That's the heart that says, I am bare, I am open. Here are my iniquities. Cleanse me. My faith, my belief is in you, Jesus. You've been lifted up. And I receive the life of God. I see, I enter into the kingdom of God. Born of water and born of the spirit. Not a religious achievement. Not a separated, inaccessible thing available only to a few. But scandalously available to all. In only one way. In only one way, and that is belief in Jesus. And in that way, the gospel is available to everyone, but changes for no one. And God has prepared the gospel for everyone and has prepared everyone's heart for the gospel. It is the longing of our heart. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has set eternity in the hearts of man. The longing of every heart is Jesus. So my prayer for us as I bring it into to close is for us as a local church, to have the passion for the supernatural salvation of God. Not the reasoned out, enlightened out, worked out, logicked out salvation of God, but the scandalous supernatural salvation of God. And that, that informs how we pray to the Lord and cry out as a local church for his salvation to come. Not of our good words or good works or great strategies, but of the simple, audacious grace and truth of relationship and clarity that comes when we declare the good news of Jesus Christ. Yeah? I love this encounter with Jesus that Nicodemus has. And we don't hear any more of Nicodemus's response. But I love this encounter. Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me pray for us. And I'll hand it back to you, Chris. 
Lord Jesus, I just thank you for the audacity of the gospel. I thank you that there is not a heart in this world that you did not make to receive the gospel. And I pray, Lord, for just a fresh revelation of your desire to seek and save the lost and for the incredible privilege for us to partner with you. I thank you, Jesus, for the clarity with which you you reveal that salvation belongs to you. It doesn't belong to us, that we partner with you in it, but it is a supernatural thing, Lord. And I thank you for the scandalous gospel being available to all and just that, 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 that there is no one disqualified from knowing you, whether Pharisee or thief on the cross, whether race or location or age, or whatever it may be, no one is disqualified from knowing you. May we be a people, Lord. May we be a local church, a family that demonstrates that no one is disqualified from you, but that all are welcome to, as your word says, come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I pray that that would be boldly on our lips to all people that we know. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.